it's a gold medal. Got it! <laughs> Van Avermaet is gonna go. Greg Van Avermaet of Belgium. Fuglesang chases him. Mike has settled for bronze. He knows he can't get over the top of these two. Greg Van Avermaet of Belgium is hammering home and will take Belgium's gold medal in the road race in Rio de Janeiro. Silver for Denmark and bronze for Poland. What a race, what a ride by all. Bringing you the stories behind the standards. This is the BSI Education Podcast with Matthew Childs and Cindy Parakil. Today's episode is on standards at the Olympics. Sitius Altius Fortius. No, that's not the podcast motto, though now we come to think of it, maybe we should have one but the Olympic motto, which, if you don't know your Latin, means faster, higher, stronger. It was the Dominican priest Henri Didon who first expressed these words in the opening ceremony of a school sports event way back in 1881. Frenchman Baron Pierre de Coubertin, the architect of the modern Olympic Games, who was present that day, adopted them as the Olympic motto. The idea is that it expresses the aspirations of the Olympic movement, not only in its athletic and technical sense, but also from a moral and educational perspective too. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs, and the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. This month sees the start of the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games, so we thought we should take a look at some of the standards involved in some of the Olympic sports. We've chosen the only five sports to have appeared at every summer games in the modern era, some commentary of which you heard at the top of the episode. We also throw in generous portions of sports history and some childhood memories too. Now, the five sports in question are athletics, gymnastics, cycling, swimming and fencing. I bet you weren't expecting that. So, the reigning world champion, the number one in the world on the right, the youngster on the left and the youngster's got it! Yana Egorian has got the gold! Unbelievable! Uh, what a delight to see that. She's been fencing so well all day. Velikaya had some wobbles throughout the day, but somehow soldiered her way through to the gold medal match. She was miles ahead at the beginning, and somehow this young lady has got herself an Olympic gold medal and a, small, a sporting smile from Velikaya. We have a brand new Russian Olympic champion in women's sabre. Absolutely. I blooming love the Olympics. It's the only time you'll find me up at 3am taking a keen interest in small ball rifle shooting or dressage or the modern pentathlon. They hold some pretty powerful sporting memories for me too. The Co and Ovet battles over 800 metres and 1500 metres at Moscow in 1980 and Los Angeles in 1984 made a particularly strong impression on me as a teenager. More recently, Mo Farah at London 2012, winning the 10,000 metres as part of that fantastic Super Saturday. So nervous was I for him that night that I think I did my own 10k pacing up and down the lounge. I was also very fortunate to get hold of some tickets for London 2012, a night session of athletics at the Olympic Stadium, seated only 50 metres from the Olympic flame. Though the family and I had spent all day in the Olympic Park. Cost us a fortune but it was worth every single penny for me to say I was there. It was magical. 
The first written records of the ancient Olympic Games date to 776 BC, when a cook named Koroibus won the only event, a 192-meter foot race called the Stade, the origin of the word stadium, to become the first Olympic champion. The ancient Olympics were held every four years during a religious festival honoring Zeus and named for their location at Olympia in southern Greece. Their influence was so great that ancient historians began to measure time by the four-year increments in between Olympic Games, which were known as Olympiads. Participation was initially limited to free-born male citizens of Greece. There were no women's events and married women were prohibited from attending the competition. Athletes competed naked. They wanted to show Zeus their physical power and muscular physique. Showing off their bodies also helped intimidate other competitors. After the Romans conquered Greece in the mid-2nd century BC, the games continued, but their standards and quality declined. In AD 393, Emperor Theodosius I, a Christian, called for a ban on all pagan festivals, ending the ancient Olympic traditions after nearly 12 centuries. It would be another 1,500 years before Pierre de Coubertin proposed the idea of reviving the Olympics as an international athletic competition. The first modern Olympics were held in Athens, Greece, in 1896. 280 participants from 13 nations, all males, competed in 43 events across nine sports. Tokyo 2020 will welcome over 11,000 athletes from 193 countries competing in over 400 events across 33 sports, including five ones appearing for the first time. Baseball and softball, karate, sport climbing, skateboarding, and surfing. There is an international standard associated with the Olympics as a large global sporting event. ISO 2012-1 offers guidance and best practice to help people manage events and control their social, economic and environmental impacts. The standard's flexible approach means that it can be used for all types of events, from music festivals to school outings to, well, the Olympic Games. Based on BS 8901, ISO 2012-1 was published in time for London 2012, which was considered a success for sustainability management. Tokyo 2020 has been certified against ISO 2012-1. From May through August 2019, its activities were assessed by BSI in its role as an ISO certification body, and the certification covers all operations of Tokyo 2020. Check out episode 29 of the podcast for more information on standards and certification. But let's get back to the sport. Now, as I mentioned, there are only five sports that have appeared every summer games in the modern era, and none of them require you to compete naked. These are athletics, gymnastics, cycling, swimming, and fencing. And we're going to take a look at some of the standards involved in them. Also in this episode, we have the latest about my favourite standard. This time we hear from 
me. And in keeping with the spirit of the episode, it's also on a sporting theme. A quick reminder that for more information on BSI education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And for those listening via Apple Podcasts and looking at those star ratings, then five is the magic number for you. Share us on social media using the hashtag BSIEdPod. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or previous episodes, or even ideas for future episodes, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback. Sport number one, athletics. A variety of competitions in running, walking, jumping and throwing. For many people, athletics are the Olympics. And over the years, athletics has brought us so many iconic images and fantastic memories. Ben Johnson running 9.79 seconds for the 100 metres in 1988 in Seoul is seared into my memory, as is the failed drugs test press conference that followed it a couple of days afterwards. And then, 20 years later, another I-can't-believe-it moment, as Usain Bolt in Beijing, with his left shoelace undone and celebrating before he'd even crossed the line, takes the record down to 9.69 seconds. Now, it's to the running track that we turn to first to look at some standards. Running track surfaces have changed beyond all recognition over the past 50 or 60 years. Up until the 1950s, it was all about grass, dirt and cinder. And then in the 1950s, synthetic track surfaces made from a combination of asphalt and rubber or asphalt, sand and hay began to appear. The 1960s saw the first polyurethane surfaces or tartan tracks. The 1968 Mexico City Olympics was the first global athletics event to be held on a firm synthetic surface. In 1969, the company Mondo introduced the first pre-manufactured vulcanised natural rubber track. It became the official track of the 1976 Games in Montreal, and Mondo tracks have been used at every game since, though the surface has evolved and improved over the past 45 years. The International Amateur Athletics Federation, or IAAF, is the governing body of world athletics. It publishes its track and runway synthetic surface testing specifications, which includes the use of international standards. The IAAF sets the what, standards, help provide the how. Now, the thickness of the running track is obviously important. The IAAF specify that a calibrated three-pronged depth measuring probe in accordance with an EN 1969 test method is used to determine the overall thickness of the surface. Shock absorption is also critical for the track. So the IAAF specify that the testing of this is carried out using EN 14808. And then, now stay with me, there is the issue of vertical deformation, which according to the IAAF is important because the dynamic interaction between the athlete and the surface is significant to the performance and safety of the athlete. For this, the IAAF say that a full description of the apparatus and details of the method for determining vertical deformation are given in EN 14809. And then the surface needs to perform under wet conditions, so it must pass a friction test. 
two methods are considered suitable for measuring the friction or skid resistance of running track surfaces. These two ways and the apparatus and methods required are set out in standards EN 13036 part 4 and EN 14903. And finally, there is the tensile strength of the track. This is important because it provides an indication of the durability of the surface. For this, the IAAF specifies the use of EN 12230, which provides the method and apparatus required to determine tensile properties of synthetic sports surfaces. Standards, helping to keep everything on track. Now, it's not only the track where we might see the use of standards. We also see them being used in the throwing events too. The hammer throw is one of the four throwing events in regular athletics competitions, along with the discus, shot put and javelin. Legend traces the concept of the hammer throw to around 2000 BC and the Taltine Games in Tara Island, where the Celtic warrior Cuchulain gripped a chariot wheel by its axle, whirled it around his head and threw it a huge distance. Now the hammer used in this sport is not a chariot wheel, but a metal ball, 7.26 kilograms for men, 4 kilograms for women, attached by a steel wire to a grip no longer than 1.22 meters long, while remaining inside a circle surrounded by a hammer cage. The hammer cage shall be designed, manufactured and maintained so as to be capable of stopping a 7.26 kilograms hammer moving at speeds of up to 32 meters per second. This equates to a kinetic energy of 3.72 kilojoules. It may be assumed that type B1 netting with a minimum breaking energy at end of life of 4.4 kilojoules as defined in EN 1263-1 will meet this requirement. The same standard is also specified by the IAAF for the discus throw. The discus was introduced as part of the pentathlon in the ancient Olympics of 708 BC. The enduring image of the Greek discus thrower comes from the iconic 5th century BC statue by the great sculptor Myron. Today, athletes throw a metal disc weighing 2 kilograms for men, 1 kilogram for women, as far as possible while remaining inside a 2.5 metre diameter circle. So when you're watching those Olympians rotating in those circles and hurling the hammer and the discus huge distances, just think, if it smashes into the net, it's standard EN 1263-1 that makes sure it stays there. Although I wasn't alive to see it, another one of those famous Olympic sporting images came in Mexico City in 1968, when a bounding Bob Beeman leapt 8.9 metres to create a new long jump record, a record that was to stand for 23 years. Now, the long jump is made up of two parts, the runway and the sandpit. For the runway, the IAAF specifies the same standards as for the running track. For the pit, the rules of the IAAF state that For the safety of the athletes, the sand must, to avoid hardening as a result of moisture, consist of washed river sand or pure quartz sand without organic components, maximum 2mm granules, of which not more than 5% in weight is less than 0.2mm. Quartz sand, or silica sand, is made up of silicon dioxide, 
and the material must contain at least 95% silicon dioxide and less than 0.6% iron oxide. If the sand does not meet these criteria, it will qualify as what's called regular sand. Silica sand is used to provide athletes with a soft area to land their jumps, whilst making it easier to measure distances for competitions. Now, I've got a bit of history with the long jump. The year was 1984, and I was competing in an inter-school sports event in Southam, South Warwickshire. The long jump competition had finished. I think I might have come second. But the track was slightly downhill, or so it seemed to me, so I planted another go to try and get a personal best. The IAAF states that the maximum allowance for the overall downward inclination of the runway in the last 40 metres in the running direction shall not exceed 0.1% when measured to the level of the lowest part of the takeoff board. Well, it was definitely way more than that. So whilst everyone was heading off to the track for the final event relay, where I was supposed to be running the anchor leg, I was off down the long jump runway for a cheeky and very unofficial extra attempt. It started well, good speed down the track, then right foot firmly planted on the takeoff board and I took off nicely and in mid-air started to twist my legs in the traditional hitch kick style. Then things started to go wrong. As I was finishing my twist, the spikes at the bottom of my left shoe made contact with the fleshy calf muscles of my right leg. As I landed, well, I'll leave that to your imagination. Suffice to say, I missed the relay as I was carted off to hospital to have several stitches. I doubt very much that on that Thursday afternoon in 1984, the Southam School sand pit was filled with silica sand. I suspect it was just regular stuff for us. And more than three decades on from that day, I still have the 10 centimetre scar, just to remind me what an absolute idiot I was. Do you want to know more about the role and purpose of standards in the modern world? and in so doing, become a standards champion? Then BSI's free online course, The Power of Standards, is for you. Through its three modules, you'll learn about what standards are, why organizations use them, how they are made, and how and why people get involved in standards making. The course is designed to last around 30 minutes, but you don't need to complete it all at once. You can stop at any point and restart again later when you're ready. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. Sport number two, gymnastics. The performance of systematic exercises, often with the use of apparatus, either as a competitive sport or to improve strength, agility, coordination and physical conditioning. The term gymnastics is derived from a Greek word meaning to exercise naked. There's a lot of nakedness in this episode, isn't there? And this applied in ancient Greece to all exercises practised in the gymnasium, the place where male athletes did indeed exercise unclothed. Now, many of these exercises came to be included in the Olympic Games – until the abandonment of the Games in AD 393. Some of the competitions grouped under this ancient definition of gymnastics later became separate sports, such as athletics, wrestling and boxing. Of the modern events currently considered to be gymnastics, only tumbling and a primitive form of vaulting were known in the ancient world. 
Egyptian hieroglyphs show variations of backbends and other stunts being performed with a partner. Tumbling was an art form in ancient China as well. Gymnastics competitions were not standardised until the 1928 Olympics in Amsterdam, when five of the six events currently held in Olympic gymnastics were contested. Pommel horse, rings, vaulting, parallel bars and the horizontal bar. Women first competed in the Olympics in 1928 in events similar to those of the men, except for the addition of the balance beam. Floor exercise events were added in 1932. Now, throughout the history of the Olympics, there have been some performers and performances that are transferred from sport into popular culture. For the past few years, women's gymnastics has been dominated by one supreme athlete, America's Simone Biles. With a combination of 30 Olympic and World Championship medals, she is widely considered to be the greatest and most dominant female gymnast of all time. She even has four skills named after her, and is the only gymnast in the world to have performed them in competition in the floor exercise, the vault and on the beam. But before Simone Biles, there came a certain Romanian called Nadia Comaneci. In 1976, at the age of only 14, she burst onto the stage at the Montreal Olympic Games and changed the sport of women's artistic gymnastics forever. At those games, she became the first gymnast to receive a perfect 10 eventually going on to score seven in total, four on the uneven bars and three on the beam. Now, as any parent of a gymnast will tell you, and I am one of those, an absolutely critical part of gymnastics is the landing. After performing any complex manoeuvre, you want to make sure the landing is as safe as possible, and that comes down to the landing mats. Now, if you've ever watched gymnastics on television, you'll have seen that they are everywhere, scattered around the apparatus and the performance area. Just as the IAAF does for athletics, the International Gymnastics Federation, or FIG, the world governing body for gymnastics, specifies the performance qualities of the equipment used in its sport, including for safety mats. FIG specifies different shapes and sizes for use around the gymnasium depending on their function. Landing mats, supplemental mats, or spotter mats. Spotter mats are used by coaches to throw underneath the gymnast if things look like they're about to go wrong. FIG also specifies the functional properties of the foam used in these safety mats. For this, they reference the standard ISO 1798, which specifies a method for determining the strength and deformation properties of flexible cellular materials when a test piece is extended at a constant rate until it breaks. FIG also specifies the standard ISO 3386-1, which is a standard used to measure the compression stress of the foam. Standards are also referenced by FIG in the performance area or floor, but not in the way you might think. It's all to do with the gloss coating of the floor area and how it reflects the light of the arena. Fig says that for measuring the reflection, the standard ISO 2813 should be used. This standard specifies a method for determining the gloss of coatings using the three geometries of 20 degrees, 60 degrees or 85 degrees. After all, 
We wouldn't want the light of the arena bouncing off the floor to put off Simone Biles attempting her signature jaw-dropping tumbles now, would we? Look them up on YouTube. They're amazing. My favourite standard. My standard's journey is a relatively recent one. I joined BSI back in 2016, having spent the previous two decades working in and around education policy, both inside and outside of government. I don't get involved with the standards development side of things at BSI, so the standard I've chosen as my favourite has a more personal rather than a professional connection. Now, if you're lucky enough to have an outside space or a garden and children, then you may have been lobbied successfully by your offspring to get them a trampoline. This happened to me too. For the past seven years, time spent in the garden has been accompanied by the familiar <laughs> of trampoline springs as tiny feet meet trampoline base, plus the odd squeal and scream thrown in for good measure too. Well, every time I help the kids up the steps and through the zip door, either for themselves or to join them, taking careful note of the weight limit, I'd be forced, quite rightly, to look at the safety information written in huge and pretty much impossible to ignore text on the meshing, part of which included the text BSEN 71-14. This standard specifies requirements and test methods for trampolines for domestic use, their access devices and their enclosures, intended for outdoor and indoor use by one person at a time. Now, since it's been four, my son has been doing gymnastics, and since the age of seven, he's taken part in tumbling, a particular gymnastics discipline which involves performing eight moves on a 25-metre sprung track. Each pass is over in about 10 seconds. They call it the 100 metres of gymnastics. Having a trampoline in the back garden really helped his training. He was out on it all hours and in all weather. He's recently outgrown it, but he must have jumped up and down on it tens of thousands of times. In fact, he used it so much I realised I couldn't sell it on eBay. When I took it apart, and it was pretty huge, I realised that it wouldn't be going back together anytime soon. When I took it to the recycling centre, one of the staff members asked me, I bet you're not going to miss the uh, 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 sound, are you? It struck me then that over the years, it had never really bothered me. But I bet it had probably irritated the hell out of the neighbours. Sport number three, cycling, a competitive physical activity using bicycles. Cycling at the Olympics now actually covers four separate sports. Road cycling, track cycling, mountain biking and BMX. Track cycling itself has been around since at least 1870. When cycling was in its infancy, wooden indoor tracks were built, resembling the velodromes of today. With the exception of 1912, the discipline has featured at every Olympic Games since 1896. At those first games, there was only track cycling. Six events were contested. 19 cyclists, all men, from five nations competed. Incredibly, it was only in 1988 that women's events were added. There have been many changes to the programme over the years. It now features only five events much fewer than for the World Championships. A sprint, a team sprint, a kirin, where riders start in a bunch behind a moped, which exits the track with three and a half laps to go, a team pursuit, an omnium, 
made up of four separate races, and the Madison, a relay race contested over 50 kilometres for men and 30 kilometres for women, with intermediate sprints every 10 laps. Road cycling has been included on every Olympic programme since the Stockholm Games in 1912. Mountain bike racing entered the programme at the Atlanta Olympics in 1996, followed by BMX racing in 2008 in Beijing. Tokyo 2020 will feature BMX freestyle for the first time. The UCI, the world governing body for cycling, has quite a reputation as governing bodies go, with many claiming they are more concerned with sock height or banning the aero tuck position in road cycling than with design and material innovation. Just in case you're interested, they state that Socks and overshoes used in competition may not rise above the height defined by half the distance between the middle of the lateral malleolus and the middle of the fibula head. So now you know. Now, the UCI publishes a technical guide for equipment used in road and track events. It also makes this broad general statement. Equipment used must meet all relevant ISO quality and safety requirements for bicycles as reference for illustration purposes in the clarification guide published on the UCI website, as well as any other standards applicable in the country of the event. The regulations continue. It is essential that the equipment used in competition meets the prevailing quality and safety standards for bicycles. Mechanics and riders should also be aware of the ISO 4210 standard on safety that applies to cycling equipment. ISO 4210 outlines a process for testing the fatigue strength of cycling components. Its testing requirements are built on three pillars, fatigue, caused by recurring loads, overloading and impacts. With relatively simple setups, manufacturers can then carry out tests and ensure a certain degree of operational safety. Now, in the words of Dan Wooten, technical director at Moulton Bicycles and standards maker, who appeared in episode 22 of the podcast, which was our press conference answering listener questions, ISO 4210 is the big cycle safety standard, the Bible. Check out that episode to discover some of the quirkiest standards associated with cycling products and the role of the cycling component manufacturers. ISO 4210 is a standard in many parts, currently 10. ISO 4210-2 specifies the safety and performance requirements for the design, assembly and testing of bicycles. And then ISO 4210-6 specifies the frame and fork test methods for ISO 4210-2. Another part of the standard referenced specifically by the UCI in its regulations is ISO 4210-4, braking test methods. Obviously not applied to track bikes, which don't have brakes. So for the go and the stop of cycling during these Olympic Games, it's all about the standard ISO 4210. Are you a postgraduate studying at a UK university? Do you have a research idea or project that involves standards in some way? Well, if so, BSI Student Research Programme can help. The way it works is simple. We gain valuable information about an area of interest to our standards work, while you can benefit from mentorship to support your project and the chance to gain knowledge and exposure that may increase your future employability. 
it's a win-win situation. To find out more about the program, including case studies of previously supported projects and how to apply, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. Sport number four, swimming. Competing to achieve the fastest time while covering a designated distance using a predetermined stroke. Freestyle, backstroke, breaststroke, or butterfly. Now, if you've ever thought, blimey, there are a lot of swimming events at the Olympics, you'd be right. There are a whopping 37 of them, 18 each for men and women, and one mixed, over a range of distances from 50 metres to 1,500 metres in the pool, and longer distance open water races of 10 kilometres. Yep, 10 kilometres, six miles. Now, at the heart of things, swimming is a simple sport with limited equipment required, a swimsuit, a cap and goggles. But the history of swimwear touches on the social, religious and legal attitudes to swimming itself. In classical antiquity and in most cultures, swimming was either in the nude or the swimmer would merely strip to their underwear. In the Renaissance, swimming was actually strongly discouraged and into the 18th century, it was regarded as of doubtful morality and had to be justified on health grounds. In the Victorian era, swimwear was of a style of outer clothing of the time, which was cumbersome and even dangerous in the water, especially in the case of dress-style swimwear for women. Since the early 20th century, swimming came to be regarded as a legitimate leisure activity or pastime, and clothing made specifically for swimming became the norm. Since then, swimwear has become increasingly more form-fitting and the use of high-tech materials has become more common. In 2000, Speedo launched their Fastskin suit series that mimics shark skin. The surface contained bumps and ridges that channeled the water over the swimmer's body, approximately 3% more efficiently than traditional materials. Those suits covered most of the body, from neck to ankles and wrists, and their shape was optimised for specific swimming strokes, compressing some body parts while allowing more freedom to the others. Now, those suits were approved for the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, where they helped to win a whopping 83% of the medals. By the next Olympics, similar suits had been developed by another company, but they were not approved by FINA, the world governing body for swimming. In July 2009, FINA voted to ban non-textile swimsuits in competitive events from 2010 onwards. The new policy was implemented to combat the issues associated with performance-enhancing costumes, hindering the ability to accurately measure the performance of swimmers. Subsequently, the new ruling stated that men's swimsuits may only cover the area from the navel to the knee and women's from the shoulder to the knee. FINA now specifies the material type, buoyancy, permeability and thickness of swimwear. It says that the total thickness of materials used shall have a maximum value of 0.8mm and 3-5mm for wetsuits. For testing the thickness of swimwear, it specifies the use of an international standard, ISO 5084. This standard describes a method for the determination of the thickness of textiles and textile products under specified pressure. Now, there are some other related international standards of interest here too. 
ISO 17608 specifies a method to determine the resistance of bare elastine yarns to chlorinated aqueous environments such as swimming pools. ISO 105 specifies a method for determining the resistance of the color of textiles of all kinds in all forms to the action of active chlorine in concentrations, as used to disinfect swimming pools. Just imagine the panic in the pool if the color started bleeding out of your brand new red speedos. Now for goggles. Fina states that the material used or the construction must not put the health of the athletes at risk, nor create a risk of injury. The goggles shall comply with prevailing safety standards for eyewear. Goggles have the function to protect the eyes against water and ensure visibility. Their design or construction shall serve these functions and especially shall not seek to obtain aquadynamic advantages. The standard in question here is ISO 18527. This standard specifies the requirements for eyewear for both recreational and specialist competitive swimming. It deals with materials, construction, optical properties, and test methods. So the next time you have a dip, maybe give a thought to ISO 17608, ISO 105, and ISO 18527. Sport number five: fencing. Fighting with swords, especially foils, épées, or sabers, according to a set of rules, in order to score points against an opponent. Sword play has been practiced for thousands of years. There have been carvings depicting fencers found in a temple near Luxor, dating from around 1190 BC. From the 16th to the 18th century, duels were common, with combatants using a variety of weapons, including quarterstaffs and backswords. Such bouts were bloody and occasionally fatal. Fencing began the move from a form of military training to a sport in either the 14th or 15th century. Both Italy and Germany lay claim to its origins, with German fencing masters organizing the first guilds in the 15th century. The most notable being the Marksbruder of Frankfurt, formed in 1478. Three innovations in the 17th and 18th centuries led to the popularity of fencing as a sport: the foil, a weapon with a flattened tip, a set of rules governing the target area, and the wire mesh mask. Together, these developments ensure the safety of fencing's participants. Today, fencing is a group of three related combat sports featuring different swords: the foil, the épée, and the saber. Winning points are made through the weapon's contact with an opponent. The fencing competitions at Tokyo 2020 will feature 12 events, the first time that both team and individual events have been held in all three weapons for both men and women. I tried fencing back in secondary school, and I don't know if we were using the foil, the épée, or the saber, and I'm not sure why we did it. Maybe the school got hold of some funding and got somebody special in to come and teach us. But whatever the reason, we only did it once. But I absolutely loved it. As you can imagine, for a group of 14-year-olds, it was great fun having access to swords in PE. I absolutely loved the kit too—the white jacket and the face mask. There was something fantastic about fighting someone when they couldn't see your face. Now, 
If you've ever watched fencing on TV, you'll have seen that most of the time the fencers are on their toes, thrusting forwards and then retreating. Bouts are nine minutes long, split into three minute periods, with rest in between. It doesn't sound much, but this amount of time on your toes is exhausting. So apart from being able to fight your friends and the great kit, my other abiding memory of fencing were my burning calf muscles. A game of chess is like a sword fight. You must think first before you move. So the three weapons in modern fencing are the foil, epée and sabre. Each weapon has its own rules and strategies. The foil is a light thrusting weapon with a maximum weight of 500 grams. The foil targets the torso, but not the arms or legs. Touches are scored only with the tip. The epée is a thrusting weapon like the foil, but heavier with a maximum total weight of 775 grams. In epée, the entire body is a valid target. Like foil, all hits must be with the tip and not the sides of the blade. The sabre is a light cutting and thrusting weapon that targets the entire body above the waist, except the weapon hand. Like the foil, the maximum legal weight of the sabre is 500 grams. Hits with the entire blade or point are valid. And then we have the kit, something that I loved wearing all those years ago. Most personal protective equipment for fencing is made of tough cotton, nylon, Kevlar and other ballistic fabrics such as Dyneema, which have been developed to resist puncture. Now the complete fencing kit comprises a form-fitting jacket with a strap or croissard that passes beneath the legs, a plastron, which is an underarm protector, the sword hand is protected by a glove with a gauntlet that prevents blades from going up the sleeve and causing injury, the glove also improves grip. Breeches or knickers that end just below the knee and are required to have 10 centimetres of overlap with the jacket. Most are equipped with suspenders. So this is the only sport that I can think of where you can legitimately say that you wear knickers and suspenders. Fencing socks, long enough to cover the knee. Some cover most of the thigh. Fencing shoes that have flat soles reinforced on the inside for the back foot and in the heel for the front foot. The reinforcement prevents wear from lunging. Those might have helped save my calves as well. A chest protector made of plastic, worn mainly by female fencers. A lame, a layer of electrically conductive material worn over the fencing jacket in foil and sabre fencing, coupled with an electric cord to register scoring. And finally, a fencing mask, which includes a bib that protects the neck. Now, there is one key standard associated with fencing, and that's the European standard EN 13537, protective clothing, hand, arm, chest, abdomen, leg, genital and face protectors for fences. Corrections Corner. It's actually EN 13567. Now, fencing masks are worn to protect the face, head and throat from penetrative strikes. An epée, foil or sabre can produce a lot of force in the hand of an expert sword handler. Now, for this next bit, I should acknowledge the contributions of a blog by fencing instructor Keith Farrell, which you can find at keithfarrell.net. EN3567 divides masks into two categories, Level 1 and Level 2, and masks rated according to EN13567 have two main features, the bib and the mesh. 
The standard also sets out the requirements for the strength and durability of the wire for the mesh, the chemical composition, and the gaps between the wire when woven into the mesh. But only the bib and the mesh are assigned numbers to describe their protective qualities. A level 1 mask has a bib rated to protect against at least 350 newtons of penetrative force and a mesh rated to protect against at least 600. A level 2 mask has a bib rated to protect against at least 1,600 newtons of penetrative force and a mesh rated to protect against at least 1,000. The FIE requires competitors at international level to wear level 2 equipment. So, the next time you're watching fencing and wondering why you can't see the face behind the mask, that'll be because of EN 13567. A final thought. Obviously, we all want to watch clean sport. For those of us of a certain age, the world seemed to stand still when Ben Johnson failed that drug test at the Seoul Olympics in 1988. Anti-doping is under the auspices of WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency. Laboratories that wish to perform the analysis of doping controls for sports under the World Anti-Doping Code must achieve and maintain accreditation from WADA. And this accreditation is based upon compliance with two international standards. The International Standard for Laboratories and ISO IEC 17025, Testing and Calibration of Laboratories. It's important work, but let's hope Tokyo 2020 is not remembered for any doping headlines. To end on a more positive note, when watching the Tokyo Games or any future games, maybe just give a little consideration to some of the standards doing their stuff behind the scenes. You have been listening to an episode of the BSI Education Podcast. Subscribe to us now wherever you get your podcasts. just heard a stripped media production.